The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. kind of freaking out a little <laughs> hearing that and wondering what in the world is going on. Um, but some of you may know this is the second time our brother Charlie has uh, blown the shofar for us. And I want to talk a little bit about that as we get into our New Year's message for today. Um, the Jews celebrated what is known as the High Holy Days. This is the most sacred time of the year. And it, it begins with their holiday called Rosh Hashanah which is the Jewish New Year, and it ends with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, actually, in our modern calendar, this will fall usually around September or October, uh, but I highlight it because it, it is our New Year, according to our calendar, and there are these 10 days in between these two holidays that is filled with fasting and introspection, and repentance. Now, the biblical name for Rosh Hashanah is actually Yom Teruach. And what that literally translates to is the day of blasting. <laughs> and the reason why it's called the day of blasting is because on the day of the new year, the Israelites were commanded to blow the shofar, blow the trumpet. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24, it says, Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Okay? Now, may it sound like Charlie was just going to town, doing whatever he wanted, riffing, but actually there's some very prescribed patterns of the blowing, and I believe uh, Charlie was following that in terms of these short bursts as well as these long extended blasts on the trumpet. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 to 20 and verse 19, it says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud shofar blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. As the sound of the shofar grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. In Psalm 47, verse 5, it says, God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of shofar. And we see this theme over and over again in the Bible of God's presence coming among his people and it being accompanied by the blasting of trumpets or what we would say, it, the literal rendering is the shofar, the, the horn that is blown. And so it signifies that God is with his people. It is also blown during the high holy days to signify repentance and fasting. The sound of the shofar was blown to call God's people to listen 
and to obey his word. In fact, some of the sounds that are blasted on the shofar are intentionally meant to mimic the sound of human crying, of human wailing, as an expression to capture our sense of repentance before God and seeking him. And so I don't know if, if you enjoyed it, but I, I want to actually do that somewhat regularly to hear the shofar as the Israelites did in the Old Testament times, and even modern Jews do today, in, th- in terms of what that signifies for the presence of God in our midst. Uh, as I do almost every year, I want to show you a brief video that's sort of a year in review that just looks back at 2017 and all of the things that have happened in this eventful year. And so it's just going to run for a couple minutes, and let's take a look at that, and then we'll go on with the sermon for the morning, Okay. I don't know about you, but those year-in-review videos always get me kind of emotional. It it was another crazy eventful year, wasn't it? You think about everything that happened in 2017 from the ascendancy of the Trump presidency to the hurricanes to the Me Too movement to the shooting in Vegas and the shooting here and there. Uh, at At some level, it's hard to even process all of it, right? And as it's all sort of coming at you, I, I think quite often we're left with sort of the sense of, what does it all mean? Where, what, what does it say about our country, about me? Um, you know, typically New Year's is not a religious holiday. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, but New Year's tends to fall in sort of the secular holiday of just uh, meeting with friends and, you know, it's the ball coming down in Times Square and all of that. Uh, But my hope is that here at ICC, we would see the new year along that Jewish tradition of a time of reflection, a time when we really sort of ask ourselves as we look back and say, what do the events of this past year say about me, about not just what happened globally or nationally, but what are the events that happened in my life? What were sort of the watershed moments in 2017? And what may God be trying to teach me? about the things that I experienced in this year. And in light of that, what may he have for me in this coming year of 2018? And the way that I want to guide this meditation as we close another year is by closing our series in the book of Jeremiah, by looking at chapters 42 to 44 and reflect on this message of what these events that happen in these chapters can mean for our own lives and our relationship with God. During the High Holy Days, there is this day, the third day of the ten days, known as the Fast of Gedaliah. The Fast of Gedaliah. Now, I don't know if that name, Gedaliah, rings a bell for you, but it's come up a number of times in our study of the book of Jeremiah. After conquering Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, basically appoints this guy, Gedaliah, to be the governor over Judah. And so he leaves it in his charge, and Gedaliah is a good guy. He is a strong leader. And under his leadership, Judah experiences this pocket of peace. And the peace is strong enough that people who scattered, the Jews who scattered throughout the surrounding countries, start coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to Judah, and they once again come back to their farms and begin to settle down, and life is good. 
But this brief period of peace is abruptly ended when Gedaliah is assassinated. This man named Ishmael comes out of nowhere, and he, along with ten other men, end up having a dinner with Gedaliah. And there are actually people who warn Gedaliah that this guy is up to no good. And you better stay away from him. But Gedaliah can't imagine that this guy could do anything to him. And so there at the dinner party, Ishmael pulls out a sword and he kills Gedaliah. And he kills all of of the other guests at the dinner party. And along with these ten other men, they even kill all the Babylonian soldiers who were there assigned to guard Gedaliah. After that assassination, these 11 men go on a bit of a rampage. And they go and they kill dozens of other Jews. They throw all of the bodies into this hole in the ground, this this, uh, cistern. And eventually, a detachment of the army starts chasing these men who have basically taken hostage a bunch of other Jews. And they finally set the hostages free. But Ishmael and these ten men escape unharmed. And so this fast of Gedaliah that occurs during the High Holy Days is to observe the murder of this man, this good leader. And what happens is that the remaining Jews are convinced that now that some Babylonians and the governor that was put in charge were murdered, that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come after them. And so what they do is they quickly gather all their things and the remaining Jews head off to Egypt to try to find safety there. And this is where we pick up our story that I want to preach to you this morning. In Jeremiah 42, verse 1 through 3, it says this, Then all the army officers, including Johanan, son of Kariah, and Jezaniah, son of Hushiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah, the prophet, and said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. It's interesting, they had gotten as far as Bethlehem. But then this idea struck them and said, hey, maybe it would be a good idea for us to pray about this and see what God wants us to do. And it's unfortunate, but sadly enough, prayer is often an afterthought, isn't it? After we've even already decided what we're going to do, it's sort of like if you've ever started into a meal and realized you forgot to say grace. And with a mouthful of chicken, you say, oh, maybe we should pray, you know? And then someone prays for the meal. It's sort of a bit like that. They have already sort of made up their mind as to what they're going to do. And halfway through their journey, they stop and say, hey, maybe we ought to pray and see what God wants us to do. I think we've all heard this phrase, uh, all we can do now is pray, right? All we can do now is pray. And I think what that basically reveals is a heart that says, after I've exhausted all of my other options, after my back is against the wall and I have nothing else I can do, I guess we turn to prayer (laughs) as a last and desperate resort. Um, And I want to ask you that as a starting point this morning, is what is the role of prayer in your life? Is it a last resort after you've tried everything else? 
Is it a formality that you ask for God's guidance when in truth you already know what you're intending to do? There is this interesting detail in the request to Jeremiah for prayer that they say, pray to the Lord your God, not to the Lord our God. And it may seem insignificant, but I think it is actually like a Freudian slip. It indicates how far they've really fallen from God. It's, it's in fact, the same wording that King Saul used right after the prophet Samuel said, because you have rejected God, God has rejected you as king. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 30, it says, Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. You see, the fact that God has rejected Saul, as king, doesn't even face Saul. All he was concerned about was the appearances. And so he begged Samuel, okay, that's fine if God has rejected me. Would you at least just come back with me in front of my leaders and put on a show so that I don't look bad in front of them? And so he says, and so that we can worship the Lord your God. Well, the people... Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 42, verse 4, it says... I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. And so then the people reply in verses 5 to 6. Then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be true and faithful witnesses, witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us for we will obey the Lord our God. I don't think Jeremiah could have crafted words any better if you would have asked him, what kind of response are you hoping to get from the people? And on the surface, everything looks great. Jeremiah is committed to praying for God's guidance and the people are committing themselves to obeying whatever the answer is out of Jeremiah's prayer. The people, in essence, tell Jeremiah, it doesn't matter what the message is that you bring back to us. Just tell us what God tells you, and we are committed to obeying whatever he wants us to do. And so in verses 7 to 8, as the story goes on, it says, Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johanan, son of Kariah, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. You see, for Jeremiah, prayer was not an afterthought or a formality. It was at the center of his life. And so for ten agonizing days, Jeremiah kept praying and waiting on God for an answer. But when God finally spoke to Jeremiah, it wasn't the response the people were hoping for. It wasn't what they were expecting, nor was it what they wanted. In verses 9 to 16, it records this. He said to them, speaking of Jeremiah, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition says. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, be, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. 
However, if you say we will not stay in this land and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say no, we will go and live in Egypt where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord, your remnant, you remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and you go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there. And the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. Basically, God tells the people, don't go to Egypt. Stay in Judah. Even though things seem horrible or unbearable in the moment, he says, that season is going to pass. And there is going to be revival in the land. There is going to be hope in this country once again. And he warns them not only that, but he says, if you flee to Egypt thinking that that is going to provide you security that you desperately want, know that all that is going to follow you there is hardship and death. You know, it's interesting how often Egypt is brought up in the Bible as a temptation for God's people. It's a temptation because Egypt represented security and prosperity. As a civilization, Egypt was impressive. Its wealth was awesome. Its economy stable. Egypt was more technologically advanced than almost all the other nations of the world. Going to Egypt was like going to New York City, going to Paris, going to London. When Abraham got tired wandering in the desert, he went to Egypt, where he got into actually a lot of trouble there. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert and sick of all the manna that were eating, where did they want to go? They wanted to go back to Egypt. Unbelievably, after they had just been freed from there as slaves, they said, yeah, but the food was so good, you know? We ate like kings over there. It's interesting, King Solomon, he ended up marrying Pharaoh's daughter thinking that this was going to bring security to Israel by making an alliance with this powerful empire. And all it ended up doing was beginning this downward trend of marrying one foreign wife after another. But it started in Egypt as he had these foreign wives pull him away from God. And so even in this situation in Jeremiah's day, worried about their future, worried about their security, this is their thought. Let's run away to Egypt where everything will be easier and safer. Well, how did the people respond to Jeremiah's message? In chapter 43, verses 1 through 3, it says this. When Jeremiah had finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent to him to tell them, Azariah, son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, son of Kariah, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are lying. <laughs> the Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. <laughs> you see, at the beginning... The Israelites said, it doesn't matter what the answer is, good or bad. We'll accept it as God's message to us and we'll obey. But now that Jeremiah says, I prayed about it for 10 days and this is what God has to say, don't go to Egypt. 
They accuse him of lying. They even accuse him of being part of a conspiracy to get them all killed or captured by the Babylonians. And so it goes on in verses 4 to 7. So Johan and son of Kariah and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Instead, Johan and son of Kariah and all the army officers led away all the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been scattered. They also led away all those whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had left with Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, the men, the women, the children, and the king's daughters. And they took Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch, son of Neriah, along with them. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tapanis. And so despite that earlier message that no matter what the message may be, uh, we will obey, they disregarded God's warning and they moved to Egypt. And they even forced Jeremiah against his will to go with them as their captive. And I want to start with this first teaching point and it's simply this. I think one of the lessons we can learn from this whole story is this. We are not as open to God's leading as we think we are. Okay? We are not as open to God's leading as we think we are. The Israelites thought that they were open to obeying God until God's will went against their expectations and their own wisdom of what they thought they needed to do. And so faced with this inconvenient and unwanted message from God, they simply rejected it. And I don't think we're very different in that way. I think too many times we are willing to go along with God's plans, so we say, just as long as God is willing to go along with our plans. And that's the subtext of our obedience, isn't it? In other words, we're not really asking for his guidance or his leadership in our life as much as we just want him to bless our plans and to rubber stamp whatever we want to do. Derek Kidner puts it like this. All along... Had they realized it, they had regarded God as a power to enlist, not a Lord to obey. And they still cannot believe that his will can be radically different from their own. I think this is the bias, this is the blindness that all of us walk in, is to say, I want to do God's will, but what we're really saying is, I want God to align himself with my will of the things that I want out of life. I think... Out of that, another lesson that we can learn is this. We can easily confuse our will with God's will. I want to say this. I think every one of us in this room needs to have the honesty to admit that often our sense of God's will is clouded by our own desires. As I already pointed out, when, you first, when, when, when we first approach Jeremiah with this prayer request, the Jews say, Please pray to the Lord your God. But after hearing God's answer to Jeremiah's prayer, they respond to him, You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. In other words, what they seem to be saying to Jeremiah is this, I don't know about your God, Jeremiah, but there's no way that our God would tell us not to go to Egypt. And so based on this erroneous assumption, the only reasonable conclusion was, Jeremiah, you're lying to us. You're lying. Don't tell us don't go to Egypt. 
There's no way that our God would tell us that. And in a lot of ways, they were acting like they were arguing on God's behalf. But in truth, they were only defending their own determination to run away to Egypt. How then can we distinguish what is our will and what is God's will? How do we do that? I think this is something that all of us struggle with, right? How do I know if this is just a thinking inside my own head or this is really God speaking to me and leading me? There was this guy that lived centuries ago by the name of Ignatius Loyola. He was actually a Spanish soldier. But he would eventually go on to become a priest and would found the Jesuit order. And he wrestled with this issue. How can a person know the will of God? Especially when Ignatius recognized all of us are so easily swayed by our own emotions and desires. How do we really distinguish that this is God's voice speaking to us? And he created some guidelines that I think are helpful as we try to discern God's will in our life. First, this is what Ignatius said, is that he said, when a person is in a state of desolation, is the word he used, desolation, meaning you feel far away from God, it feels even that God has abandoned you and you are overcome by the grief of difficulties in your life and suffering and all of that. He says, in that emotional state of desolation, nobody can really see God's will clearly. Okay? We're blinded by that pain. And so what he says is, if you really want to know the will of God, the first thing that you must do is find consolation in the presence of God. You've got to draw close to Jesus and let his peace and his joy reign over you so that your heart can truly be in a condition to say you hear the voice of God out of that place of film, filling that God can give to us. And then secondly, Ignatius said this. He emphasized the importance of humility in prayer. In other words, what he meant by that humility is having an honest understanding of ourselves our true motives, our feelings, our strengths, our weaknesses, our limitations, all that we are. He says, if we don't come to an honest self-realization of the things that are driving us, then we can't be honest about saying we know the will of God in our lives. And so that is an act of the Holy Spirit that we can ask, saying, Lord, show me the things that are in the depths of my soul that I cannot even see in myself that may be affecting my decision-making in ways that are other than your will. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit or maybe it's going to be your spouse. <laughs> I bet your spouse could tell you a lot about that, you know? Betty often elucidates me to the ways in which I'm not seeing myself clearly. And I thank her for that. Lastly, Ignatius talked about adopting a posture of what he called holy indifference. Holy indifference. He recognized that how a desire for a particular outcome can become so strong that it clouds our sense of discernment. And the truth is that the only answer that we will accept from God is yes. Just like these Jews in Jeremiah's time. We are acting like we're open, but we want this thing so badly that in truth, the only answer we're willing to accept is the one that confirms what we already want. 
And so what Ignatius Loyola said is to guard ourselves against that bias and to hear God more clearly, we have to basically let go of all outcomes and affirm that ultimately Jesus is all we need. You know, it's saying, you know, God, I want this thing so badly, but I'm letting it go and I'm entrusting it into your hands. And I'm telling you, Jesus, I'm satisfied in you and you alone even if I don't get this thing. Gordon Smith comments on Loyola's teaching, and he says, we experience an inner freedom from worldly goods because we have come increasingly to find that our lives are anchored in the love of God and trust in God's provision for our lives. Regardless of whether the Lord gives us things, we have the freedom of indifference to accept either outcome, not because we do not care or have no preferences, but because what ultimately matters is that we would live in the love of God. You know, our brother Charlie uh, blew the shofar for us at the start of my message, and uh, some of you know that 2017 was a pretty crazy year for him. And I apologize, I haven't asked to share this, but I think we've heard his testimony enough that I could say, visiting him in the hospital and praying for his healing, because, you know, he was slowly experiencing this paralysis that was overtaking his body as he was racked with this Guillain-Barre syndrome. And uh, as we went to the hospital to pray over Charlie, uh, you could see the weakness. He was struggling just to talk, and you could see the paralysis. Just, just lifting up his arms was getting tiring for him. And it was a really frightening moment standing by him at that hospital bed. But what struck me about that visit to see Charlie at the hospital more than anything else was this incredible peace that he had during that time where even as he said, I'm thankful that you're here to pray for my healing, but what Charlie said to us was, but even if God doesn't heal, it's okay because I just am surrendering my destiny into his hand. I think that's what a picture of holy indifference looks like. Lord, I want your healing. I want your touch. But even if you do not heal, Thy will be done. Your will be done in my life. It's interesting. If you fast forward to chapter 44, Jeremiah now finds himself in Egypt. And he continues this prophetic ministry, calling the people of Judah to abandon their idols and return to God. And the response of the people in Egypt reveals how deeply they have abandoned God. Because in Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 15 to 18, it says this. Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt, said to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would do. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven." And we'll pour our drink offerings to her just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring our drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. By this point, the Jews have abandoned all pretense of following God. 
And they defiantly say to Jeremiah, we're sick of your words. We're not even going to listen to them anymore. We're going to burn our incense to these idols and don't say anything about it. And this was their logic, as crazy and upside down as it was. They said, when we were in Jerusalem, in the days of King Josiah and Zedekiah and all these guys, when we were burning those incense, everything was going well with us. Life was good. We were prospering. And then King Josiah shows up and he takes down all of our idols and he tells us to go back to Yahweh. And ever since that time, we have been suffering. And so they said, we're going to go back to our idols. (laughs) Because when we worshiped our idols, life was good. When we followed God, all we faced was suffering. You see, there is this incredible danger in trying to use circumstances to gauge whether God is pleased with us or not pleased with us. And I think the truth is for us as Christians, we do that all the time, don't we? We have to be very cautious when we try to use circumstances to say, oh, we should keep going in this way or we better watch out and turn away from this. Do you realize that you could be totally sinning against God and experiencing amazing, quote, blessing and prosperity. And you could be living all out for Jesus and be experiencing incredible suffering and difficulty. Just because things are going well doesn't mean we're living in God's will. And just because we are struggling doesn't mean God isn't on our side. That kind of thinking is more superstition than faith. And I think the scary thing is, I think for a lot of us, even in the church, what we call faith often resembles superstition and magic more than an unrelenting trust in the God that we worship, no matter what. That was Jeremiah's journey. The faith that Jeremiah was invited to discover, as we've seen, as we've covered this book, was an incredibly inconvenient faith, to say the least. He was hated by his own countrymen as a traitor for telling them not to resist the Babylonians who were about to come and to submit under their judgment. There's this interesting story. When Jerusalem falls and the Babylonians are deporting thousands of Jews to Babylon... What happens is that this commander uh, finds Jeremiah chained up in that group of deportees who are going to Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar singles him out, amazingly, singles out Jeremiah. And he has Jeremiah taken out of that line of refugees heading to Babylon. And he says to Jeremiah something incredible. Because it seems that word had gotten to the Babylonians that this prophet of Israel, of Judah, was telling the Israelites, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. Surrender to him. And so, to the Babylonians' eyes, Jeremiah is a hero. <laughs> he's, he's a VIP. So they, they pull him aside and they say, uh, Jeremiah, you know, you shouldn't be in these chains. And they say to him, you can do whatever you want. You can go back to Babylon with us and we'll treat you like a prince. Or frankly, Jeremiah, go wherever you want. Go anywhere you want, anywhere. It's yours. And of all things, what Jeremiah decides to do 
is he decides to go back to Jerusalem. This burning rubble of a city with a bunch of beggars and lame people as citizens. And he says, I want to go back there with my people and be with my God. And that's what Jeremiah does. He goes back. And you would think that God would reward him for his faithfulness, wouldn't you? You would think, and it looks for a moment like that's what's going to happen. Because under Gedaliah's leadership as governor, good things are happening. And all the remnant from all the land are starting to come back together. And Jeremiah is seeing all this, and he may think, this is it. This was the restoration that I had prophesied over. This is the great things happening until this guy Ishmael shows up and kills him, you know, and assassinates him. And now he's ending up captive in Egypt where he doesn't want to be. And in chapter 44, that's the last we're told of what happens to Jeremiah. It's like it's fading to black, and he's stuck in Egypt in obscurity among a people that have turned their backs on God. This is not the fairy tale ending that we see in storybooks, is it? It's not the ending that seems fit for somebody who has given their life to God. But this is the inconvenient life of faith. Eugene Peterson comments on Jeremiah's life. And he says, Jeremiah chose to live by faith. Living by faith does not mean living with applause. Living by faith does not mean playing on the winning team. Living by faith demands readiness to live by what cannot be seen or controlled or predicted. Johanan and the people respected Jeremiah enough to ask for his prayers but they didn't trust God enough to follow his counsel. They were tired of living by faith. They decided to go to Egypt. They wanted the security and stability of a solid economy. They didn't want the hard work of rebuilding a life of faith in God. They wanted the soft life that they thought awaited them in Egypt. They were looking for an easy way out. Life is ambiguous. There are loose ends. It takes maturity to live with the ambiguity and the chaos, the absurdity and the untidiness. If we refuse to live with it, we exclude something. And what we exclude may very well be the essential and dear, the hazards of faith, the mysteries of God. I think that's the crazy life of faith that God invites us to. There's no easy formula here of do this and God will do this for us. I think often the places that God asks us to go by faith are places that can be at times very difficult and painful. And yet, that is the only way of following God is by faith. The writer of Hebrews, and I'll close with this, has this to say in Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We're about to come here to the Lord's table and take part in the Holy Communion. And I think that's such a fitting way to 
close off the last day of this year, 2017. And as we come to this table, I just want you to reflect on your life as you think about 2017 and what it represents for you. And as we look ahead to 2018, what I want to invite us as a church to do is to wrestle with this difference between how these Jews treated God. This God that they pushed into a corner, a God that they only wanted in small doses, a God that they only wanted to confirm their own will of what they wanted out of life, and the God of Jeremiah, the life of Jeremiah, the life of inconvenient faith that says, Lord, your will be done. And I want to invite us to embrace 2018 as being a year where prayer would not be a formality. It would not be an after-the-fact afterthought, but it would be at the center of our lives as we think about what it means to put God at the center of all of our decision-making, of everything that we seek in our life, of happiness and hopes and all the fulfillment we want out of this life. May we be able to find it as we surrender everything into his hands. I want to invite those who are going to help us with the communion to come forward at this time.